Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christian Europe. And I did hit the pause button for that music. I'm sorry. Today is Sunday, November 2nd, 2014. This is our, perhaps our, um, fourth installment, I believe, or perhaps the fifth. I've lost count already of Christiania Europe. This is a program aimed at being a fellowship and an outreach for both old and new European listeners of our programs. Once again, I have Sven Longshanks here to join me. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. Hello, Sven. Hi, Bill. Um, yes, good to, good to be back. I apologize to listeners for not being here the last week, but it was um, out of my hands, basically. I, I was not able to get to use the Internet. I had connect, serious connection problems. Um, but now things are fixed, so it should be back to normal again and back to the usual schedule. So I apologise for not being here, and um, thanks to people for um, turning up to listen tonight. Well, well, thanks for being here, and and um, it's not really your fault that you were um, absent the last for the last program. I mean, it was deferred one week, and then I decided to go it alone two weeks ago because I didn't want to keep deferring it. But, a, a, um, you know, when we have technical problems that are beyond our control because we have no Internet, well, that's not really something you you have to um, feel too badly about. Yeah, thanks. thanks. Sven, has been reading the, uh, Sven has been reading a book that I, I admittedly didn't know existed until recently, the Brute, or the Chronicles of England, by a man named Friedrich Bree, and this was published, I believe, in 1906. It is based upon something called the Manuscript Rawlinson from the Bodleian Library. The Bodleian Library is um, a library at Oxford University of ancient British manuscripts that was also perused heavily by Sharon Turner when he wrote his History of the Anglo-Saxons. From my memory, because I did try to find, and my own life is in disarray because we are in, in the middle of moving still after three months, I was trying to find my copy of Sharon Turner's works and it's not with the portion of my library that I have here with me. It's still in storage. I looked all over for um, Sharon Turner this afternoon and couldn't find it. The, the um, Turner had quoted heavily from manuscripts of the Bodleian Library and relied upon them for his own creation of the history of the Anglo-Saxons, which I believe was published in 1842. George Rawlinson, or Canon Rawlinson, because he was a senior priest in the Anglican Church, was an extremely well-educated man himself. This manuscript is named for him. I really don't know why, but Rawlinson had written several histories, including my own preferred translation of the histories of Herodotus, so he also did many... Um, he also did at least several translations of classical works. 
and, and um, was a very learned man. So I don't know why this manuscript is named for him, but it is. Um, this of well, well Sharon Sharon Turner's work proceeds this by uh, sixty years. I, I would really sixty some odd years. I would really like to compare them one day. And and now that I know about this book and its existence through you, Sven, I, I, I'd like to read it myself. So maybe you'll want to give us a description of it. Yeah, well, it's um, I first heard about it through through a historian that that mentioned it and said that this was you know the definitive. British history, and just looking up some more information about it, I've got um, a piece here that I'll just read out. The, the prose brute survives today in several different forms. Current scholarship argues that it was first composed in Anglo-Norman sometime after 1272 by an anonymous compiler working from Latin sources. This Anglo-Norman version was later extended to 1333 and then in about 1400 translated into English. And the English version, in turn, received its own set of continuations, some extending as late as 1461. Most of these later editions, especially those of the 15th century, represent original English composition. But the, the Middle English version, extant in over 170 manuscripts, achieved a remarkably wide distribution in 15th century England. If we can measure popularity by the number of surviving manuscripts, then this work was the second most popular Middle English prose text in England. Only the Wycliffe translations of the Bible are found in more manuscripts. Copied over and over, it underwent various modifications, especially at its end where scribes continually added material in an effort to keep the work up to date. Later chroniclers, including Hollinshead and Stowe, borrowed frequently from the prose group, and it was the first English chronicle in print produced by Caxton in 1480. The enormous popularity of the Middle English brute is a significant fact. For one thing, it attests to the establishment of the English language as a medium for historical writing in the late Middle Ages, earlier chronicles having been written and read in Latin or French. Furthermore, it is an indication of the importance of historical writing for the time, making the work useful for understanding the meaning and function of history in the late Middle Ages and for exploring the relationship between such histories and England's national self-consciousness in the 15th and 16th centuries. <clears throat> so that sort of uh, gives a good description of it. It was obviously uh, well known. This was the accepted history of the British people. This is what was taught in the schools. This is what people knew as being the correct history. Um, there's a reference in the in part of the Chronicles itself to King Alfred having having a copy of it bound to a pole so that people could actually read because it gives the lists of all the kings and all the um, important things that happened in the time during their reign and it talks about um, things that are going on in in the Holy Land at the same time, like it, it mentions when uh, Solomon's Temple was being built, at what king we had over here in Britain at the time. It talks about um, uh, Christianity when it first came to Britain, the first king. It, it talks about the Anglo-Saxons, tells you what the Roman Catholic Church was like when it first came over, which was, you know, was a very late time, it was in the 6th or the, or the 7th century, and it goes right back to um, Albion, 
who was here before Brutus, who was the daughter of a, a king in Syria. And she came over to to Britain. She was expelled, actually, by her father for murdering her, her um, husbands. And she came to Britain and gave, gave it her name. And then it wasn't until after the fall of Troy that um, Brute came over to this, this country. Uh, he was uh, a, a grandson, I think, of, of Dada, or, or Dardan, who was the son of Zara, who was the son of Judah. So th- that's where you've got your Israelite link straight away, is in the ancestry of Brute. And all the people that were in Britain up until the Anglo-Saxons came were the descendants of Brute. Now, I've got... Um, uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to bring this up is because so many people say to me, well, well Christianity was, didn't, didn't come to Europe until the 6th or the 7th century, or it didn't come to Britain until till then, and, and they'll show you, um, or they'll talk about something that the Venerable Bede said, but Bede was also called the execrable Bede by a lot of British people because of the way that he distorted the history because he, he wanted to, to make out that there really wasn't very much of a civilization here before the Anglo-Saxons came because the Anglo-Saxons pretty much destroyed the, the um, civilization. And this is another thing, is, is people say that the, the Christians forced themselves on the pagans. Well, the, the history of Britain shows you that, that that wasn't what happened. It was completely the other way around. You had a, a very noble, chivalrous race uh, or a tribe that were part of the same race as the Anglo-Saxons and as the Normans, but they were a separate tribe, and they had a they had a civilization here that was just attacked by wave after wave of pagans. Really, you had the Romans that were the first ones to attack, then they eventually became Christian. You had the Anglo-Saxons coming over to attack, and and the, the British people were Christian by that time anyway. They were sending out missionaries throughout Europe by the time the Anglo-Saxons came over here. And all these parts are mentioned in the brute, and it's very interesting the insight that they that they actually give. I mean, I could go back to the to the beginning and read the first bit out about um, King Brute himself, because that's interesting. Because you you can see parts of British legends right right from the beginning. Now, King Brute is where we get the word um, Britain from, but there's a, a stone in Totnes, which is where he was supposedly first. Um, set foot and in Cornwall there's a, a great rock or like a cliff face and it's called um, God Magog and there's, and there's a reference to a giant's leap and there's all these references to giants and in, um, in the city of London they've also got a statue of this, this figure and the, the conspiracy crowd like to say oh well this is you know this, that's the devil that's who the, um, the Illuminati worship or whatever this God Magog figure but it's not it's a, it's a figure from our history from when uh, Brute first came into Britain and he had um, this chap Corn with him who eventually gave his name to Cornwall and he wrestled with, with this with this um, with this giant and the giant was called as I say was called God Magog and I could uh, read a bit of it because it, it gives you just an, an idea of, of what the mythical aspect of the book is like it does have mythical parts in it. There's there's um, a vision in it, which is which Merlin gives, which apparently lists all the kings that Britain will ever have, and talks about the end times. Uh, it's very reminiscent of 
of Daniel. But I, mean, I could start off with with reading this just because this 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 was the where Britain actually got its name from was from this this um, descendant of the Trojans who first made his way over here. <clears throat> so this is how Brute arrived at Totnes. Let me say a couple of things about Bede, and, and then I would like to say a couple of things about um, Bede and Nennius and, and what they accepted about British origins. And I would like to talk about that for a few minutes because there are some aspects which aren't um, explicitly evident but are, are very telling about the, um, the, the pagan British and the pagan English views of their own origins. Before they were, were, were um, well, especially the English, but before they were um, Catholicized, so maybe it's not right to say that the British were pagans at this time, but before they were Catholicized and inducted into um, Romish indoctrination, let's put it that way. First, Bede, I understand your complaints about Bede fully, and, and Bede was an Englishman. He was an Anglo-Saxon. So he was, um, of course, heavily biased, in favor of not only the Anglo-Saxons, but also, and, and to the detriment of the Bretons, but also he was heavily biased in favor of the Roman Church. And he, um, his version of Anglo-Saxon history in Britain was sanitized. And, and the horrors that took place were um, not elaborated upon. However, Nennius was a Welshman, and in his history of, 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 um, of Britain, he didn't go into the, a lot of those details either. He had also excluded a lot of the um, horrors of, of the um, wars between the Britons and the Anglo-Saxons in what we know now as England. So... so and it's um, whether it's I'm not trying to be apologetic for Bede, but it, it seems to me that that may have been more out of Christian deportment than, or, or as much out of Christian deportment as it was out of um, attempting to sanitize the history of your own people. The pages of Bede, while they uh, of course, he he's consist he glorifies Gregory. He, he's consistently gloating about the uh, the Roman Church, but he still, even though he doesn't get into the history, he still recognizes that there is a British Church in England from an early time, but he doesn't give the history of it. He recognizes it, and, and he actually um, remarks upon and explains things that were, that were differences between the Roman Catholics and the British Church, such as the calculation of the Passover date and, and other theological disputes that they had. So Bede's 
admittance of these disputes and these differences and his explanations of them, that alone is enough to prove that the Bretons were Christian before the Anglo-Saxons were, and that Christianity had been in Britain before the Anglo-Saxons were. So, so Bede is making those admissions, but he's not explaining them. He, he should have, perhaps, um, we would hope that he should have made mention of how long the British church had been in, in Britain, how long Christianity had been in Britain, something about its history. He didn't go there. He, he didn't give any of that history, but he did admit that it was there. And, and it's very clear from, from, his, from his book that, that um, the Bretons were Christians long before Augustine came to England. It's just not explicitly described, and there's no explicit history of British Christianity given. But Bede's um, an Anglo-Saxon, and his outlook and his purpose is to glorify the Roman Church and, and to explain the ecclesiastical history from the perspective of a Roman priest. That, that's so I'm not really apologizing for Bede, but I'm trying to explain why he had his biases and why he did not give a, a good history of the British church. Because he, he, it, it would have been, well, we would love to have one, that's for sure. And it would have been to his credit to have done that. But he does admit its, its existence and, and um, admit that it had been there before the Angles were were Christianized by Rome, even if those admissions are indirect. Yes. And that's what I'm going to say um, about B. That's all I would like to, or that's all that I have to say. Yeah, it's political. I, I <clears throat> Sorry, go ahead. I, I would like to talk a little bit about um, B and Nennius in, in um, reference to British origins. They both... Um, I don't know how long this story was in Britain. Let me call it Britain because it's not really England at this time, right? Yeah. The, um, the Ahenius of Virgil is the earliest work that I know of that puts the origin of the British with the Trojans. And I don't know of any ancient history that does that. Now, a lot of people say, a lot of, uh, a lot of commentators and historians say, oh, Virgil, he made that up to give the, um, the Romans a reason why they were, that their claims to be ruling over Britain were valid. That, that if the, they could show that the British descended from the same stock, then Caesar had a valid reason for wanting to be their king as well as the king of the Romans. Now, now that's the, the way to dismiss the story in Virgil. But I don't buy that because nobody had to make up an excuse why Julius Caesar should be king over the Gauls. And he conquered the Gauls before he went to Britain, right? They didn't need a political reason. 
to assert their, their tyranny over the other nations of Europe. So that dismissal of Virgil's statements is discredited. But I don't understand where Virgil could have gotten the information from. I don't. I don't see it in any Greek or Roman writings earlier than Virgil. So I'm not saying that Virgil made it up. It just seems to be new to um, Greek and Roman literature with the writing of Virgil. So that's all I'll say about that. But what's telling is that both Bede, the Anglo-Saxon, and Nennius, the Breton, accepted the story as true. That's telling. And, and also, both of them explained how the Picts came from Scythia and how the Scots, directly from Scythia, and how the Scots came from Scythia through Spain and Ireland. Now, they had a, um, a fantastic connection of the Scots to the Hebrew-Israelites Hebrew of the Exodus, which isn't historical, but shows that they understood there was some sort of connection between the Scythians and the Hebrews. They missed the whole intervening history. But what's also quite um, interesting, from my own understanding of the Scythian migrations from, from their descent from the ancient Israelites and their migrations through Asia and into Europe and through Europe and some of them, not all of them, of course, but a portion of them made it into Britain at early times, such as the, the Picts and the, um, uh, I'm sorry, the Kimri or the Kimmerians and the Scots made it into Britain and Ireland at an early time, and um, that there is a connection between the Hebrews and these people, even though a lot of the details, well, practically all of the details in between are missing, but the dates that both Nennius and, and Bede often agree with, agrees with him gives for the arrival of these people in the British Isles where um, it's said that the Scots came from Spain into Ireland about a thousand years after the Exodus. Knowing the historical migrations of the Scythians from Asia, that's a very accurate figure. And that the Picts came from Scythia into, into what we know today as Scotland and northern England, about 800 years after the fall of Troy. That would be a very accurate dating from everything that we know about the Scythian migrations, which would actually put that event at about 400 B.C. That, that's, um, and, and the Scots crossing into um, Ireland about 500 B.C., that's very consistent with what we know about 
the um, deportations of the Israelites and, and their being or having become known as Kimmerians and Scythians and how long it took them to migrate down the Danube River Basin into Western Europe and eventually into Britain. It, it's all of that early history, which is, um, even though there's a lot of details missing, even though some early things are confounded, all of that early history is very, very um, agreeable to these stories are very, very agreeable to the actual histories of the Greeks and the Romans and the Assyrians and the Persians and the accounts in the Bible which tell us when these Israelites were deported and when they began their migrations in, into the north, into Asia and Europe. All of this fits into place once we understand why Bede and Nennius made certain mistakes, such as rather than understanding that the Israelites were the Scythians, they tried to put Scythians with Israelites in Egypt. And, and silly things like that because they didn't have all of the earliest details. Now the telling thing is that both Bede and Nennius accepted the idea that the people of Britain and Ireland, in the form of at least several major groups, the, the Bretons and the Scots and the Picts, which are three of the dominant groups in the British Isles, that they all came from the east, from Egypt, from Troy, and... and, and through Spain and, and, and from Scythia, that all of these people came from the East, and how readily they accepted the, the account of, of, of Ahenius and Silvius Brutus and, and these other migrations from the East shows us that they could not have had their own alternate explanations for their origins that they accepted these stories that agree with Hebrew, Greek, and Roman histories so readily. And, and it would be interesting to know if you found that in, in your reading of, of this book, this, um, the, the Chronicles of England. Well, yeah. I mean, there's, um, <clears throat> it talks about the there's, there's a few instances where various new tribes turn up and they, they sort of turn up and they go and speak to the king and he, he offers them a bit of land and they end up paying uh, triage and having allegiance to him. Uh, there's, there's one particular group that turns up and none of the, the, the women won't, won't go with this group. The, the Britonic women, um, they refuse to be shared with this group that turn up because they're strangers. And I think the Irish end up um, breeding with them and they end up sharing the same language and it, and it then says that they were called Scots. And I'm, I wonder if that wasn't, that wasn't um, gypsies, uh, when the gypsies came. Because I know that there was one, one part in our history that the, that the non-white gypsies turned up. 
and that might well have been them and it might have got mixed up with them because the, the say the Britannic women wouldn't wouldn't intermingle with them whereas there didn't seem to be a problem with that with any of these other groups when they took when they turn up and I think the, the only problem really occurs with with the with the Romans when they try to well they don't really try to invade but they, they, they just want to get tribute paid and there's one part in it before Rome really, well, before Julius Caesar invades, one of the Britannic kings invades Rome and actually takes uh, tribute from them. And then uh, Julius Caesar tries to come over here and, and Claudius Caesar, and they ended up reaching uh, an, an agreement. And then we ended up having problems with, well, they ended up actually marrying, I think, the Caesar's daughter, so that there was a a link between the Britannic kingly line and the emperors of Rome from that time onwards. And then there was they sent a Roman king over and he married our King Cole. There's a, a nursery rhyme, old King Cole was a merry old soul, a merry old soul was he. Well, this King Cole, his daughter married, um, was uh, Helena, Saint Helena she became, and she married Constance, who was the, the Roman chap that they sent over and their son was Constantine who was Constantine the Great uh, he was crowned in Britain first he was the king of Britain and then he went over um, and took down the uh, the Roman Emperor at the time but he was persecuting all the Christians and, and massacring the Christians over there so Constantine went over there and, and took Rome basically and the the Emperor following that was um, I think it was his son as well, Maximian, or I think it's the name. And then further on down the line from that, you've got King Arthur. And King Arthur goes and fights against the, the Scots. It's quite obvious that King Arthur was a Christian because he didn't massacre the Scots because they said, look, we are Christians the same as you. And if you, you can't attack us, you'll go down in history as, you know, as being really bad, really bad. This isn't going to look good on your record. Uh, so... Arthur let, let the Scots go, um, and he was, he was noted for the, his Christian actions. Uh, he then went out into France and took back a part of France that was um, that was paying tribute to Rome. So that Rome, an emperor, sends um, a message to him saying, you know, you've got to pay us tribute, you've got to pay us um, royalties. And he wrote, instead of, again, he showed his Christian Christianity by not shooting the messenger, the two messengers, when the, the court wanted to have them shot, but it, he, he treated them well, fed them, wined them, sent them back with with a message saying, well, no, you should be paying me tribute because I am descended from Constantine, he was our king and he was your emperor, and I'm descended from Maximio, who was our king and, and your emperor. Um, and so the emperor of Rome sends over there to, to fight with him, and he, he kills that emperor, um, but then he has to come back to Britain because in his, while he's been away from Britain, um, there's a, another king which is, which is taken over back here. So you have these links between um, the Roman high caste, the emperors of Rome, with the kings of Britain. And, and that go, goes right the way back to the um, brute with his, with his um, Trojan heritage. And, and, it's, and this, these uh, chronicles, they're based on other manuscripts that we have, and also what was common knowledge at the time. 
So it was known that, that um, the Britons were descended from the Trojans. It was known that um, King, Arthur, King Arthur and the Roman, well, it was known that the Roman emperors were descended from um, British stock. And the Roman Catholic Church likes to say that, that um, St. Helena, they try and play down the fact that she was a queen and that she was descended from the Queen of Britain. It's almost like the way in the Talmud where they say that Jesus' mother was a hairdresser. You know, it's a similar thing that they've said about this Saint Helena, because they wish to hide this fact that the that the um, Britonic people had a claim to the um, the emperorship and were actually married into this line. Because some people will say, well, Arthur was a Roman, so there's a bit of confusion there. It wasn't that he was Roman; he he was he was a Briton and he he was British, but his his line had married in with with the Roman line. But it was the Romans that sort of married in with us to get to get um, to make peace with us. Basically, that's what happened with uh, Claud- Claudius Caesar, I think. And there, was, and there was another one as well. And this sort of details that. But one of, one of the reasons why they um, they rubbished this history and said that it was none of it was true was because they didn't believe that um, there, there was a Troy. They didn't believe that. that there actually was a Troy. They thought that was made up, and then when they discovered that there were the ruins of Troy, then you know that confirmed this this history, because London was always called Care Troya. I mean that's recorded as well. It was called New Troy, and you've got these all these place names around Britain that were named after Brutus and his descendants. Like you've got um, Billingsgate, which was King King Billingus. King Bilinga, and um, various others, and as I say, various other places that were all named after these these descendants, and they they put up um, memorials as well of, of the great battles that they had, and to talk about um, saying that there are links with the Bible at the time, so that you can date some of it. I mean, there, there's one here. This is. Um, King Lyle, and here is the three three kings three kings descended from King Brute, and before him you had a King Ebrach, which sounds very like King Ebru, and before him there was there was actually a, a daughter of one of the queens that was called Abraham, and the river she ended up being drowned in a river, and that river was always called Abraham by the Welsh people because of this woman that drowned in it called Abraham. So you've got these Hebrew names that are, are turning up, and then, but not in the way that you would imagine, because you wouldn't imagine Abraham being uh, a woman named Abraham, or a river being called that. But there's, a, there's a, just a short piece here, which is um, King Lyle. And again, here's someone that, that gave his name to uh, someone. I'll just, just read this. It's just a paragraph. And when Brent Grenachal was dead, reigned his son... Lyle, 23 year, and he made a fair town, and let call it Carlisle, after his name, and was a worthy man, and much beloved of his people. And when he had reigned 22 years, he died, and lies at Carlisle. And in his time reigned King Solomon in Jerusalem, that made ye noble temple, and to him come to Jerusalem, Sibel, Queen of Sheba, for to hear and see if it was so that men spoken of your great nobly and wisdom and of wit of King Solomon, 
and she found it so that men had her told. So you've got a mention of, of King Solomon, which is which is way back there, and also in the Welsh brutes, because there's also these manuscripts are in Welsh, it talks of the um, the priest uh, was Eli at the time, the, uh, the, in Judah at the time. So you've got these, these references to Israel that are obvious, that, you know, like that one, which is just saying um, Solomon, and you've got the less obvious ones, like a woman being called Abraham or a king being called Ebrach, because I'm, I'm sure that Ebrach's got to go back to Hebrew or Eber. Yeah, anything with, with that Eber at the beginning um, is likely to, to come from that the, the um, original ancestor Eber, you think? I, I'm sorry, I didn't, I, I didn't quite get what, what you were asking me. Well, I'm just saying about this, this King Eber, Ebrach, is the king's name is Ebrach. You've got okay. you know, a lot of places that start with the, the um, E-B-R, which goes back to Eber, um, the ancestor of Abraham, and you, you know, you've got this, this King Eber that turns up pretty soon after King Brute. Well, well, there's no doubt to me that the original British language and, and, and the languages of, of the Scots and, and all of the people that are classified as Celtic are related to the Hebrew language. And, and therefore, syllables which stand for certain words are going to appear in common throughout them. Abba is, is a Hebrew word for father. Abraham means that he would be the father of many nations. So, so to, to see those same syllables in early British names and, and having similar meanings wouldn't surprise me at all. <coughs> it's like, yes. in, in other words, the name isn't directly related to the, the, the name of Abraham. It, it's very likely derived from a, a similar phrase made out of similar similar syllables with the same meaning, or with a similar meaning. Yeah, there's a lot of similarities between the between the two two languages. Now, just looking looking through here, I mean, it goes further on past then. It lists all these kings going back to that date, and then you get to um, Kimberling or Kimberlinus, Cymbeline, sometimes called, who is reigning at the time of, of um, Christ. And then after that you've got his his son that wouldn't pay triage to Rome um, for the land that Cassibalum had granted to Rome because they, they agreed to pay some triage and he wouldn't. And they had, um, they almost had a fight about it, but they came to peaceful terms and then his son was King Armoga, and then it's saying that it was at this time that St. Peter was preaching in Antioch. And it, tell, it tells you, um, where is it here? While that this Armoga reigned, St. Peter preached in Antioch, and there he had made a noble church in the which he sat first in his chair, and there he dwelled seven years after he went to Rome and was made bishop, till that Nero the emperor let him martyr, and so preached openly all the apostles in diverse lands, they write say. 
And when Armoga had reigned 24 years, he died and, and lieth at London. And then it was uh, one king, two kings. It was three kings after that that Britain became a Christian nation with um, King Lucy. Is that, uh, there's another um, name that he's known under as well. And, uh, and he, um, th- there is historical and and archaeological evidence that Christianity was in Britain in the second century A.D. Yeah, there's, I think it's about one one fifty or, or one fifty six. Yes. There was there was no no problem with it. I mean, it, there there are other records beside this one that that talk about it. So um, I think this is the one that everyone everyone knew and that accepted. And this talks about a uh, it's hard to pronounce E U L E N C H I E Ulenchi. Um, might be um, not Aristobulus, but that EU is sounds um, a familiar prefix to one of the apostles I've read about before, but it's it slips my mind at the moment. Well, well reading about the time right after Augustine, I'd like to try to read this page from the. Uh, from, from from the brood or the chronicles of England, but by um, Friedrich Friedrich at Brie and and um, this is page ninety eight and and I have it in front of me. But we can see this also in the pages of of Bede how there was a, a British church in. Britain at a very early time. And B doesn't tell us how early. B doesn't tell us how it got there. B doesn't tell us how the Britons became Christians. But where B explains that the um, differences between the British church and, and the way that the Roman Catholics did things, and the primary difference was always in B's mind, the way he presented this, it seems that the primary difference was always the calculation of Easter. And and, and that was seemed to be a big um, thing that be like to pick on them about. But that just proves that they are there and that they are there for a long time before Bede and before Augustine, who, who gets credited with converting the, the Anglo-Saxons to Christianity, even though it's also evident from history that the British were trying to convert the Anglo-Saxons to Christianity long before Augustine showed up. And, and I'd like to read this page, and, and it's how, how St. Austin, he's called here, went into Wales. And, and, and um, it, it says, when all England, meaning the Anglo-Saxons alone and not the British, were baptized and turned to God, that St. Austin went into that land where the, the, the Britons were and, and um, there's a few words that are, that, that are kind of difficult, difficult to translate here on the fly to keep him from Englishmen that is sent in, into Wales and where he found monks and abbeys and, and what looks like high bishops for the Britons 
always destroyed the Christian people that St. Austin had baptized. And, and that doesn't mean the Bretons weren't Christians, but there was that they didn't respect Austin's Roman Catholic Christianity. And, and it reveals below, a, a little further along in the same paragraph, that the Bretons certainly were um, Christians themselves. And, and, and said to the bishops that he was a legate of Rome. So, so they saw Austin as, as an officer of Rome. They saw him as, as basically representing foreign interests. And that's why they had a disdain for Roman Catholicism. The same disdain that the um, American founding fathers had for Catholicism. And a lot of the reformers of, of England had of Roman Catholicism because Roman Catholicism is Pope worship and, and and it's a foreign interest which is alien to true organic Christianity. So the British were the, the first to despise that, even though the Anglo Saxons had, had fully adopted it. And, and he said that he was a legate of Rome and primate of all England, and that they should, by reason, by, by all reason, to be obedient, to have been obedient to him. And they said that they knelt, and, and it looks like a word that should be translated kneeled or knelt, that they knelt only to the Archbishop of. Carleone, Car, 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 or, or Carleone, it looks like. Yeah, maybe. yeah, Carleone. So, so they had their own archbishop. These Bretons had their own archbishop, and they only obeyed him. They were not going to obey this St. Austin fellow, this English bishop. And, and, and that's... Um, telling right there that the Bretons were already Christians when the Anglo-Saxons were converted. And it goes on to say that they, that they never, for, for no minor thing, did, did they ever um, kneel or be obedient to an Englishman. For the Englishman, they said, had been our adversaries and our enemies and have driven us out of our own country, and we have been Christian men, and ever have been. They were saying that they were always Christian men. And then it goes on to say, and the Englishmen have evermore been pagans, but now of late that they have been converted. And that's why they wouldn't accept. They had, they had always been Christians. This is the, the, the um, sixth, late 6th, early 7th century A.D. The Bretons are saying that they have always been Christians. And these Englishmen have just converted. And all of a sudden they want to send this legate of Rome to, to, to force us to be obedient to them. The British were not accepting this legate of Rome and, and his authority, because they were always Christ, Christians, and he's a newcomer to the faith, so they're not going to be obedient to him. And, and, 
and they had righteous indignation at that. So right away, this St. Austin, and, and this is what, what the text says, that this St. Austin sent to, to the king of Kent, to Adelbright, and, and told them what happened, that they wouldn't be obedient to him, but they would only be obedient to, to the um, bishop, to their own bishop in, in Carleon. So, so they got this bishop of Kent, the, I'm sorry, that this king of Kent. Austin enlisted this king of Kent and, and another neighboring king of Northumberland, Alfred, to attack the Bretons simply because they wouldn't bow to the, 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 um, the Roman Catholic Church. And right away we see that the, that the Englishmen, as soon as they adopted Christianity, as soon as they were converted, they wanted to use it to rule over the Bretons and, and to destroy the British Church, which took several hundred years to do. I believe it took about 600 years for them to do that. But it's, it, it's pretty incredible to me. And, and uh, it, it's, it, it shows that Christianity didn't really change the Anglo-Saxon attitude to the Bretons, did it? No, they, they still wanted to um, conquer them and, and, and take over them. I mean, I'm just talking about the um, archbishop there. I'm just looking back for this... Um, bit that I had here about King Lucy because it says, yeah, it says there that um, this King Lucy, that's three three kings after the um, the king that was around when Jesus was around, it said um, Lucy made so in his land two archbishops one at Canterbury and another at York and other many bishops that yet be in this land and when these two legates had baptized all the land, they ordained priests for to baptize in children and for to make the sacrament. And after they went again to Rome, and the king dwelled in his land and reigned with muckle honor, 33 year, and after died and lieth at Gloucester. So that was, you know, that was, well, 400 years back that they had uh, an archbishopric. And the, and the archbishopric at Caerleone, that was originally the high druid's seat. Because all the archdruids became the archbishops, basically. There was, there was a smooth transition from um, druidism to Christianity. And that's what they said, we've always been Christians, because it didn't really seem to have been much of a change. In fact, Taliesin, the, the bard, I think he was writing in the 6th century, he said that although Christianity was a new thing in Asia, there never was a time that the, the, the Britons had not been Christian, that they hadn't followed it, its precepts. And it, it's it's interesting, I mean, you, you pick that, that passage there um, with uh, St. Austin when he turns up. I mean, the, the, very, next, the very next one tells, shows you a little bit more about just how, just how they behave because Austin gets together with this other king and then he wants to go and attack them, and and the the Britannic people sort of heard about this, and you know they they didn't want to be attacked, so they they thought well we'll go and offer ourselves to the you know the the king that wants to do this to us, and it says just read a bit here. They were one so afraid of of those kings, and they took and chose among them good men and holy, 
of Elamites, monks and priests, and other folk great plenty, that went barefoot and warward, for to have mercy of those two kings. But the kings were so stern and so wicked, that they never spoke with them, but killed them, everyone. Alas, the sorrow, for they never spared anyone, no more than the wolf does the sheep, but smited off the heads of everyone. And so all were there marched, that till him come, that is to be understood. And after, those two kings went to Bangor, for to kill all those that they might there find of the Britons. So that's, you know, that's, that sort of shows you <laughs> what the, the um, Roman version of Christianity was to, compared to the, to the Britannic one. I mean, the Britannic one, they had Eremites, which is a, an Eastern Orthodox thing. The, as far as I know, the, the Eremite um, monks, and uh, they, they live uh, what, like some hermit lives. Do you, do you know much about the Eremites? No, no, I don't. I, I don't know many of the specifics of, of, of the um, ecclesiastical organization of the early um, Catholic and, and, and other orders. Uh, I really don't. I've tried to um, keep my mind sanitized from that. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting that they, they walked barefoot. You see, this, you see all the pomp and majesty of the Roman Catholic Church, yet the, the holy people here, the, the holy Bredons, they, they were walking barefoot. And it says um, Woolwood, whatever that might be. But they were obviously, you know, walking there in penitence, you know, as the equivalent of with a white flag. And the, and the Anglo-Saxons just, just massacred them. And they've done a lot of this, actually, the, the Anglo-Saxons. They did a lot of... Um, massacring the Bredonic people, turning up to peace conferences where they weren't supposed to be armed and having knives in their um, shoes and they, and they killed all the wise men, all the, all the Bredonic wise men. You know, this is one of the reasons why you can think, well, this is probably quite truthful because this was written in the time of the Normans. So you've had the Normans and the Anglo-Saxons and then you, you've got this, which doesn't put the Normans in a very good light and it doesn't put the Anglo-Saxons in a very good light when they first arrive. I mean, later on they become more civilised. As the um, Anglo-Saxons became more Christian, they became much better people. You, you had um, King Alfred that set up all his universities and there was a great resurgence of, of learning. I, uh, King Alfred is known as a, as a saint in the Orthodox Church. You've also, around this time then, you've got the age of the saints and you've got these... Um, Anglo-Saxon kings that were very honourable men, um, very holy men, and you know they did for a couple of hundred years here in Britain. We did have a bit of a, a golden age of learning and uh, Christian morality, and, and laws were all based around Christian laws. And again, it, and you know it, it just shows you that it's when the pagans come in that they mess everything up, and then eventually they see the error of their ways, and then they they become you know, just as good as, as the Britons were before them, because they were all the same race. I mean, this again, that makes it, it clear in here. It says that um, the when Ingus turns up, who was the first of the Saxons to turn up, he his daughter marries the Britonic king. The Brit Britonic king takes a fancy to his daughter, marries his daughter, and within a short space of time. Nobody could tell the difference between 
the Saxons and the and the Britonic people because they, they they all sort of started speaking the same language and you just couldn't tell the difference between them because of course some people try to say that the the um, the Britons were of a different race to the to the Anglo-Saxons but they they clearly weren't they were the same they were the same uh, same people and I noticed that in Wales myself you know the the very sort of Nordic looking you get a red as well as golden hair, but that's sort of the, the, the only difference, more sort of a ready gold sort of colour. Well, I think Herodotus wrote of red-headed Scythian tribes around the Black Sea in his time that he knew, and they had red hair and blue eyes. The, the, um, the Picts who came into Scotland were, de- were described as, as red-headed, and, and you have by Tacitus even, and and you have um, they would describe the, um, the the word has escaped me. I apologize. The the word that the, the um, wow the Caledonians I believe he described them as, but I might be wrong. He, he that they're basically the Picts, and he described them as redheaded and tall and fair, and the um, that there were redheads amongst the Welsh. That, that are Breton, descended from the Bretons. So red, red hair alone doesn't make one a Celt. The, the greatest amount of red hair is, is seen in, from an American perspective, is seen amongst both either Irish or Scots. I went to, New, I, I went to Nova Scotia, which was primarily settled by Scots 20 years ago, and I couldn't believe the percentage of the population which had bright red hair. I, I never saw such a high percentage amongst the Irish in New Jersey, where there are large Irish communities. So, it's red hair alone doesn't. I don't think it sets one apart as as a um, a Germanic or, or a Celt, even though it, it's perceptibly more frequent among the Celts. Yeah, but I don't exactly accept that either. I think Celtic was more of a, a linguistic term rather than a, um, a specifically racial term. So right. You could have sort of um, different different types. I mean, a sort of hair color is pretty superficial when it, you know, different types colored, different um, types of light colored hair. It's it, it's always a pretty superficial thing. I think. I mean, again, before that that paragraph there, there's the bit with. Um, the famous bit where uh, Pope Gregory saw the English for the first time and, and remarked um, remarked upon them. Uh, where is it here? Alas, quoth Saint Gregory, well more they been called English, for they have the visages of angels, and therefore well ought them be Christian men. So he, he points out that they have have the visage of angels. He's um. English people, um, and it, it seems that it's appearing there that it's the, actually the Anglo-Saxon people, but it was slaves of the Anglo-Saxons, so it was far more likely to actually have been the the Britons that he was remarking on. But you know, since they're both pretty much the same, again, that's another reference to the way that we looked. I mean, I, I saw a disturbing comment the other day, something about the, the people in Britain before the Anglo-Saxons came being all stumpy dwarves or something. I don't know if it was said in jest, but, you know, I, I haven't found anything that's actually 
said anything like that. Just, just that they, they were the same, same people of the same race, but just different tribes that had, had different ways of speaking, different, different languages. But then we had Latin that we could all converse in anyway. That was the one language that we could all use. And, and very often there was, there was Greek as well. So that was the international language that we had. It amazes me the fact that these people could know two or three different languages. I, I myself only know one language. You know, to think that back then they, they knew two, three or four different languages and they were, you know, adept at learning them. It just shows you how, how, um, intelligent these people must have been and how, how, how far we've fallen from that height today, I think, with, with our learning. You know, I, th- I think our ancestors were far superior to us in so many ways. I think a lot of that is this, the, the dis- it's almost like we have a dysgenics program going on where we promote the, um, the weakest of our race at the moment and, and try to dumb everything down. Every year, the next generation seems to get um, less adept at things as the last generation. You, know, you can really look, when you look at history like this, you can see it. That, that is the destruction of classical education. And, and even 120 years ago in America, young men were much more educated than, than they are today. They, they received at, at least several years of, of, of classical education. They read from the Bible. The Bible was their, um, their how they learned to read, most people. And, and now they learn to read from these um, these Jewish stories that are aimed at socially programming children. They learn to read from Heather Has Two Daddies or stories like that. And, and, and that's pitiful. That's the, um, the destruction of our education has created nations of idiots. It, it's the, um, the I've, I've often said that the average classical Greek man would consider most Americans today, even myself, retarded. That they all spoke several languages. They 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 had a um, a great degree of learning in their own history and their own literate. And it's all. Um, and glorifying Jews or, or, or politically correct multi-ethnic diversity. It, it, it's sick. Our children are not being educated. They're being programmed for world Jewry. So that's how, many, how, how many young children in, in Europe or America have, have read Beowulf? I didn't read it until I was 40 years old, Beowulf. I didn't know it existed until I was I was 40 years old, or, or other um, classical literature from 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 Europe. Not nobody. I didn't read Homer until I was almost 40, and and that's pitiful. We 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 read this one-page story in grade school about a Trojan horse and and an old Greek poet, and and, and that was it. It was very a very brief mention. We, we we don't get into anything in depth in in our schools any longer. There's nothing required of children compared to what reading should be required if, if they were to receive a true education. So 
So it's we're in a pitiful state. Our schools are only um, producing drones for, for international corporations. That's all they do. So that you can do just enough reading and writing to to satisfy them, and you know just enough um, history and 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 geography to make you think you're you, you know something, and you know nothing. It's it's sick. I would have yeah. found it absolutely fascinating if I, you know, if I wish I'd found a book like this when I was at school. I, I didn't used to find history very, very interesting. I mean, I literally would have found it fascinating, this book, because it's, you know, just reading it now, I'm just really enjoying it. It's like it just seems very real to me. It's like it's my personal sort of history of my people. And it, like like the Bible, it's got visions in it. It's got prophetical visions in it. It's like a, a, a British people's Bible. And as I read from the bit at the beginning, it was it was second only to the Bible in popularity. You know, when the, the manuscripts of this came out, so this is what would have been studied at schools when they wanted the British people to be proud of their race and and, and proud of their country. And of course, nowadays they they try and say, well, well, we're a nation of immigrants. The British people are Mongols. It shouldn't matter that we're importing all these different races into the country. You know, you should be welcoming them like your ancestors did. Well, our ancestors did welcome other people into Britain, but they were people of our own race, and they knew that. They knew that they were descended from the from the Trojans and, and from the uh, Greeks or, or from the Romans. And this was, this was the other thing. I mean, you've got this line here from Brutus that goes back to Dada, that goes back to Judah. You had it, the um, other line from Cecrops that goes to Athens and with the Greeks. He started Athens. You've got um, Innis who married the daughter of King Latimus. And then you've got the Roman Empire that came from there. So we, we were all part of the same race. That's why these people could turn up on Britain and the king would welcome them and they'd say, we'll be your liegemen, we'll pay you um, triage, we'll pay you tribute, and this is how many um, men that I have. And the king would say, well, you can have this land over there. And it makes it clear in this, in this chronicles that there were parts of the country that, that just had wild beasts in them. And people weren't living there, and they would settle there, and they build a city, they build a borough, and they would have loyalty to the king. And then, if someone did come to attack, but didn't come straight to the king and say and explain why they were there, if someone came to invade, then they could be relied upon to help fight against them. And when the when the Romans came here, I mean, this is another uh, myth that we get taught in schools in England. You get taught that the, the Romans built all the roads. They built, see all those straight roads, the Romans built them. They didn't build them. They were built by the, by the Britannic people. When the Romans came over here, we had horses and chariots, and we had the roads were already built, because we could go up and down the country in, the, in, in these roads, because we had these different settlements. And a Boudicca that, that fought back, that's why she's in her, in her horse and chariot. Now, we, we had quite a high civilized civilization here. If you think the... Um, all the Druidic universities were here in, in Britain, so all the, um, the, the highly learned men from uh, Gaul and, and Germany would, would, and, and Scandinavia would come over here to study with the Druids. And there's a, there's a lot of pieces in this book talking about the 
king of Denmark and, uh, and of Scandinavia. And there was, a, um, you know, they, they were part of, the, of the, the group as well. I mean, there, there were little scuffles and fights between them at times, but most of the time they were, you know, they were loyal to one another. There was, like, there was times with, when there would be a king like King Arthur and he would have um, all the various groups would be allied with him. The, the Danoi would be, or the Denmark kings would be, the Scandinavian kings, the, the Gaulish ones, uh, Jutland, the king from Jutland. As, as later on, you've got um, this group called the Danoi, which is the Vikings. Uh, of course, they start raiding. But uh, of course, this was this was centuries after the um, the civilization had been knocked for six by the Anglo-Saxons and the Romans. So. You know, I, I think possibly the uh, the belief systems or the, the pagan understanding that they had, that, that the Vikings had, I think may well have been a corrupted version of, of what the Druids had 800 years previously. And it had just become corrupted by the time that they came over here and attacking us, because I can't read... Really let, let me say in the days of Judges, and, and it's in the Judges period that the so-called golden age of Phoenicia began. Now, now before the Phoenicians, there were, um, and, and when I say that the Phoenicians and, and talk about their migrations, they generally can be dated to begin about 12 or 1300 BC. And these are the children of Israel, which the Bible makes very clear with dwelling not in the interior hills of Palestine, but on the coasts and occupying the cities of Tyre and, and Sidon and, and Dor in, in Manasseh. And, and these people began to colonize various places from, from Anatolia all the way around to Britain and Ireland in, by, by 1200 B.C. Now, it's, it's, we have a, if we look at the history of Europe through biblical eyes, which we should, we have a 2,000 year presence, perhaps, of Japetai people in Europe before the Phoenician migrations. And Nothing of those 2,000 years is known, zero, zilch, except from um, a, a very scant number of archaeological relics found here and there. So because nothing of that 2,000 years is known, we, even though we can identify certain groups in Europe with peoples mentioned in the Bible very clearly, such as the... the, the um, the, the people of Tartessus in Spain, the Ionian Greeks, the, the Romans, the, the Thracians, we can identify them with biblical groups, but we can't imagine that those people that the Bible does identify as being in Europe, that they stayed still until the time of Homer in 600 B.C. when the first surviving Greek geography appears, which is with Homer. So there may well have been Japhethites 
or, or other groups of, of Shemites, such as the Etruscans, who, who were actually from Lydia in Anatolia. And all this, this is according to the earliest Greek records. There, there may well have been Japhethites in Germany, in, in England, who, who migrated north or, or, or migrated further west from where they were in Asia. There's no doubt. People don't stay still. Herodotus said that the first people he met north of the Danube River had claimed to be colonists of the Medes. And that's, the, that's another whole story. But Strabo corroborates that in his geography, that they were indeed from the land that the Greeks knew as Media in, in, in Mesopotamia. So there's, there's elements of pre-Phoenician history that can be pieced together. But it's very clear from all of the Greek and Roman writings that these Phoenicians, who can be certainly identified with the Israelites, were in Britain and Wales a thousand years before the empire of the Romans. They were in Britain and Wales mining tin in, in, in the Skilly Islands and in Cornwall. And, and we can't imagine that because the Greeks place them there with all certainty, that, that um, that's the only place in the North Sea that they had colonized and, and where they were taking advantage of the raw materials. We can't imagine that. And, and, and the, um, the history of that, outside of Scripture and outside of the Greeks, is mostly lost because of what the Romans had done in the Punic Wars. Because the Carthaginians, who were Phoenicians, had the entire Western Mediterranean pretty much sewn up throughout the entire Greek classical period. The Greeks couldn't even go there without being um, robbed and stripped of their shipping and, and turned into slaves. So, so the Carthaginians had that whole area sewn up, and, and then Rome... And, and the rise of Rome as, as an empire had freed that area to Greek and Roman exploration and um, historiography. But the Romans had, when they destroyed Carthage, basically destroyed any knowledge that we had of, of um, the Phoenician settlements in the West with the destruction of Carthage. It was gone. So, so all we could do is pick up the pieces that are left after, after the Roman conquest of the Phoenicians in the Punic Wars. It's all we can do is pick up the pieces and, and, and the hints that we find in Scripture and in the ancient Greek writings. Because no, it was a, such antipathy, ambivalence between the Romans and the Carthaginians, and Carthage was so thoroughly destroyed. There's, uh, also, I think they, they found quite a lot of coins, coinage, Phoenician coinage, and, and various other um, bits and pieces that can be traced back to the Phoenicians. So even if there isn't um, written records of it, we've got physical records of it. I mean, this is one and of the. There's a book, and, and I read it a long time ago, and I've been meaning to dig it back out one of these days. And, and it's in storage now. It, it, it's by E.O. Gordon, and it's called Prehistoric London. And that book, 
um, displays a lot of the coinage and the things that you're talking about, which have been found in Britain and which do connect Britain, pre-Roman Britain, to Mediterranean cultures. There's another um, writer, and, and he, well, he, he would be the topic of an entire show, of an entire program here by himself, called L.A. Waddell who wrote about the Phoenician origins of the Breton, Scots, and Anglo-Saxons, along with a lot of other books um, about early Aryan history from, a, from an archaeological perspective quite often. And, and he um, displays a lot of the archaeological artifacts that connect the people of Britain to the ancient Phoenicians. He sadly, and, and against, um, well, contrary to all common sense, insisted that those Phoenicians were, were, were uh, Canaanites. And, and he did that just because he imagined that the Jews must have been the Israelites. But scripture would refute him. And, and the problem is that so many Christian writers and Christian archaeologists have had a twisted perspective of Mediterranean history and European origins only because they never questioned whether the Jews were the Israelites. And they weren't. They never were. So that, that's a, um, a problem with L.A. Waddell's work, but his demonstration, his exhibition to the archaeology, which connects Britain to the, um, to the East, are invaluable. Yeah, I think I've heard of it. That's why you just said the um, prehistoric London book. I've just acquired a copy of that, actually. I haven't actually read it yet, but yeah, I'm looking forward to having a look through that. It looks pretty good. And I think one of you know, just for myself, I mean, just just looking around where I live, and I see witnesses to our biblical heritage just in the stone circles that we have, and the, and all the standing stones. And so, so you, can, you can hardly look through the Old Testament or with the first five books without coming across a reference to putting the stones up somewhere, putting a, a building a stone altar that they weren't going to sacrifice on, or building up um, stones as a witness, putting up twelve stones as a witness to, to a covenant, uh, or picking up stones from the Jordan to put them somewhere. It's just it's full of. Um, in the Old Testament, of the people putting these stones up there. And they said it was there for, for a witness that what they said had happened. And, and you can trace them going all the way across Europe, all the way to Britain, more of them in Britain than anywhere else in Europe. But, you know, they are stood there till, till now as a witness to the truth. The, the, um, yes, the standing stones in, in especially... The, the dolmens and other stone circles have been found for, from Persia all, all the way to England. That, that's explained in a book called um, Tracing Our Ancestors by Frederick Haberman, which was written in the 1930s. And Frederick Haberman was another one 
he made a, a, a many good expositions of things that were found in archaeology, and a, and a good historical aspect of most of them were, was presented, but he too took it for granted that the Jews are who they claim to be, which is a, a problem with all of the um, archaeologists and, and historians of the classics whether they were of, of, of the classical period and, and the ancient period, whether they were of British Israel persuasion or not. And Haberman was of that persuasion, but L.A. Waddell, I don't think, was. He, he, he was more or less a um, secular historian, and he was actually a professor at Oxford. I believe it was Oxford anyway, if, if my faulty memory serves me right this time. And so um, he, he didn't really have the British-Israel perspective, I don't think, but he, he did understand a lot of the same things that British-Israel would, would um, claim to understand. But took it for granted that Jews were Israelites, which is always a, um, a stick in the eye of historians and archaeologists. That the um, understanding of, of this classical history, which is presented by, by um, well, well, not only by Bedmenius, but much more in depth by, by this um, Chronicle of England, which you presented here, would um, probably clear up a lot of the contentions that the pagans have about Christianity. Because there were no Jews in, 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 in um, well, well, there may have been a few Jews, Jewish merchants with the Romans, but the Jews did not have a, a, a large influence among the British. And, and the Jews, as we know them, in the post-Roman period, there were no Jews in, in, in Britain until the time of William of Normandy. There were no there were no recorded Jews in Britain throughout any of the Saxon chronicles or, or any um, worship or devotion of things Jewish, which is what the pagans accuse Christians of doing today. And, and it's very clear that Christianity was a um, a religion well accepted amongst the pre-Anglo-Saxon British. And, and it was never attributed to, to um, the Jews or, or undue Jewish influence. And, and it's the same thing with the Alans and the Goths, who were Christians by the 3rd century A.D., and other tribes of the East. So, so the, the, um, the, the pagans... And those who lean towards paganism because they perceive that Christianity has Jewish roots, well, they're wrong. The Jews themselves have pilfered the Old Testament, and it does not belong to them, and it never did. They've pilfered that book, the people that we know as Jews today, they have pilfered that book for their own political advantage. And we shouldn't just concede that to them. When we have a, a um, demonstrable, very demonstrable history of, of being 
or, or at least of many Europeans, being a Christian people right from the very start. And before Rome had made a political vehicle out of Christianity, which didn't really happen until the 6th century. Yeah, and that, that was another of the things about this. I mean, it's not a British Israel book. It, it, the originals of it go back to the 11th century. And, and before that, this, that was when it was, you know, the, the copies of the manuscripts go back to. So it was well before the Reformation as well. Because sometimes people say that the, the claims that, um, Britain was Christian before St. Augustine, were made up by the people in the Reformation. Of course, this goes back hundreds of years before that. You know, the, the first copies of this, which talk, well, which talk right. about that. Would have to, that. They would have to prove that this was a forgery by reformers. They would have to prove that the writings of deed and many are, are forgeries by reformers. That's an, an incredibly ignorant claim. Uh, I, I think I remember reading in, uh, I can't remember exactly what it was, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle or the life of Alfred the Great. And it, it, it just, it, there's one part in that where it appeared to me that they can't have actually, any of them, ever actually seen a Jew because they didn't know what they looked like. I, I forget what it was that made me think that. But just from the, from the writing itself, I got the impression that they can't have ever actually seen a Jew. They, they've only just heard about them through the through the scriptures as being the bad guys. You know, they're, they're likened to demons or just, just pure evil. That's, you know, the way that the Jews were looked upon in Britain at the time, if ever they mentioned. There's a drawing on um, Clifton Emmerheiser's website. It's from an ancient manuscript. It's from a manuscript that dates to the 13th century AD, where Jews were in England because they were admitted by William of Normandy. William the non-conqueror, I should call him, because he wasn't really a conqueror. But, well, um, when he admitted the Jews, for, for the next 250 years, maybe 300 years, there were, there, there were all sorts of problems with the Jews in England. And, and this manuscript from the 13th century depicts a Jew, and the Jew has a long hooked nose, a, a, a long tail like a serpent, and horns. And it's written, the Jew in the 13th century was in England pictured as a devil, which is how we should be picturing Jews today, as devils. That was the thing that I was trying to think of, Bill. It was, it was that they had tails. You were yes. certain that the Jews had tails. They had tails and horns and yeah. big noses. Yes, they did. <laughs> so and the, the, that, is, that, that manuscript's on Clifton's website. I don't really remember where it is, but, but it's, um, it's on one of the menus somewhere. I'll have to look for that. There's, there's a mention of um, uh, a curse being put on someone and it makes them grow tails in, in, in here as well. It seemed to be a, a thing at the, at the time was, you know, wicked people had, had tails. Um, it seemed to be a, a early idea that, that um, the, the British people had, possibly. And I just find all this history amazing. Uh, it, it just really feels real to me and, and relevant. 
you know, I mean, it feels it's it's great to read the Old Testament, and I feel involved in that, and, it, and it's good. And I know that that's my history as part of the tribes of Israel. But reading this, it sort of narrows it down to my history as directly descended from from Brutus and my history of the island that I that I live on. So it's it's just felt really good to read it. I haven't actually been able to put the book down when I've picked it up. I been stuck there for a couple of hours and sort of making notes and trying to summarize what i've what i've just read so that i can look back on it and remember it because there's so much in there but you know i'd really recommend it to anyone that is british or that is interested in british history to get a copy of it or to download a pdf of it i think there's a pdf of it that's available online and it is just very rewarding to to look through and it does confirm the the, um, the Christian identity uh, theory of the, of the Israelite descendants. It does confirm that the Christianity came to Britain in the um, well, where probably while Christ was still alive, and at least straight away afterwards, and that the the British people were Christian. And it also it's not a censored one written by the by the winners because it doesn't paint the winners in a particularly good light, as you're saying, unlike some of the other historians. So that's what gives it the ring of truth to me. I have yet to read Ninius, but I have read Bede, and I did enjoy reading it, and it did give me an idea of of my history and and a better idea of things. But, you know, I I could see why he was called the execrable Bede by certain quarters. Of the country. Well, I just believe that Bede. I, I, I believe that Bede is, was attempting to be honest. I, I just. It's my opinion that he was only very biased in favor of the Anglo-Saxons and sanitized his history for that reason. And and, and uh, while he had an opportunity to explain British Christianity, he he, he did not. And did us make perhaps did us a disservice in in that regard, but he did make the admission that British Christianity was there. I'm sorry, I had this um, document on Clifton's website confused with another document I have that I don't think is posted yet. But this 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 document on Clifton's website is under an article Clifton just wrote a paragraph in reference to called Two Seed Line in England in 1277. And it gives us a caricature of a Jew dated 1277 made in the margin of a contemporary legal document relating to a breach of the forest laws in which one of the offenders named Coke, the son of Aaron, was a Jew. And the caricature relates to the father of Coke, the cowl denotes that the wearer did not perform out-of-door work. The badge in the form of the two tables of the law was that imposed on all English Jews. So I had this confused with another document that's actually a tax roll from the Norman period that, that I haven't published yet, but is published elsewhere on the Internet, and, and I apologize for the confusion. But this clearly... Um, illustrates that the 13th century Englishmen believed that Jews were devils, and and, um, they certainly are, and and that's how they were treated. They were distinguished as devils, 
at an early time. And, and that's only fair, because they are devils. Just going to say, that, that shows that they understood what Jesus said about them. So the father was, was the devil, they were the children of the devil, so they are devils. They, you know, they had, they had a closer teaching to Christian identity teaching back then than, you know, than anything that the churches teach today. I think, it was, I think the further back you go, I think the closer Christianity got to what is being taught today is Christian identity. I think it's the most authentic Christianity there is, is, is Christian identity. If you look back at the beginning of, of in the history of Christianity. The, the, um, the Saxons themselves, that they had continually attacked other tribes of their own race and, and were very aggressive. And, and, and they, um, well, whether they were Christians or not, we see in Britain that they were aggressors against the British, who were Christians. The, the um, Saxons are one of the latest of the Germanic tribes, related Scythian tribes. And, and there's no doubt that the Scythians and the Saxons, that the people are, are um, the words are synonyms, basically, to, to the Greeks and, and um, should be considered synonyms by us. Saxons are Scythians, not all Scythians what would be identified as Saxons because they broke off at different times and adopted different names, such as the Picts, which is a relatively um, new name because it's a name that the Romans assigned to those people. The, the, um, the Saxons were aggressors against the Goths, against the Lombards, against the Franks, that they were persistent aggressors not only in in England against the British, but in the Rhine area and 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 Germany against the Franks. So, so um, the the Charlemagne Christianized the Saxons and forced Christianity upon them as an attempt to um, stop them from destroying the Franks and the other neighboring tribes in Europe in the 9th century AD. It, it's, it's, um, the, the pagans love to argue that before Christianity, our people didn't have wars with each other and attack each other. Well, before Christianity, it's very clear that especially the pagan tribes that, that resisted conversion, that they were consistently bellicose, that they consistently looted, raped, made war against, and, and, and destroyed the other white tribes of Europe. That, that is nothing that's new to Christianity. That is um, the, the blaming of Christianity for the wars in Europe is basically demonstrating a complete ignorance of all European history. Well, look at the Trojan Wars. What, where the, the, the Aryan Danans destroyed the Aryan Trojans. And, and, and that was 1,200 years before Christianity. Look, look at the Peloponnesian Wars, where the Greek Athenians and, and, and the, um, the Greek Dorians 
made war against, and decimated each other for 60 years. From about maybe 430, 440 BC all the way up to 380, 370 BC. And that didn't end when they wore each other out and still wouldn't stop fighting. Philip of Macedon came along and conquered them all. And they deserved it. And then they still wouldn't stop fighting amongst each other. And they kept, for the next two centuries, they kept making appeals to Rome to come settle the disputes amongst the various tribes of the Greeks. So the Romans got sick of their whining asses and came in and conquered them all, to put them all under the authority of Rome so they would stop killing each other. Whites were killing each other for centuries and centuries long before Christianity came along, long before the name of Christ was ever uttered in Europe. And, and the pagans that blame Christianity for the internecine wars in Europe are all absolutely ignorant of European history because they've been taught their history by the Jews, and the Jews seek to disconnect our people today from their history. If our people understood their history, they would understand the origins and the need for Christianity. There's no doubt. Yeah, it was Christianity that helped us to pull our nations together in the first place. And like I was saying earlier with um, King Arthur, instead of killing the Scots, they said, look, we're Christians, we're brothers. So they made an alliance. So King Arthur was a... Was a, a Christian man who made Christian laws and he formed alliances with, with the countries that were around him and with the nations that were around him. As soon as the Saxons came into Britain, they, they were trashing things, but once they became Christian, they settled down with the Britons and with their neighbours and made alliances with them. The same with the Vikings. When they came over, as soon as they became Christian, so... Everyone got on fine. Yeah? It's recorded that they got on fine. It's recorded that there was, there was much love and friendship between the two peoples. And this, this is after they become Christian. And before they became Christian, there were there were just hideous things recorded of them. You know, incredibly dishonourable behaviour. The sort of behaviour that that you just think is is dreadful today. You know, the equivalent of killing somebody, waving a white flag, poisoning someone that's invited you to dinner. You know, all the they, you know, a lot of the time they killed the peacemakers basically until they actually became Christian, and then they became allies with the peacemakers. And there was, you know, a big surge of learning and a big leap forward in in technology, really, and in, and in building and in architecture, and in, and and just in in learning and progressing. It wasn't until the people were Christian that there was no civil war. You know, it put an end to the civil war within the, within the country, and I know it, must, it can't just have been for Britain because Charlemagne did the same. You know, and he was able to form the well, the, the French nation that grew from it, and the German nation, and it, it stopped the 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 warfare between the tribes, and it showed them that they, that they were brothers. And the problem with it today is that has been extended to these other races, which were never meant to be a part of it. 
They're never meant to be a part of it. They're always seen as the enemy. And the uh, Saracen are named in in this chronicle. It goes into parts of the of the Crusades. Right the way through, the Saracen are the enemy, the infidel. They're the devils. You know, there's, there's no chance of uh, forming alliances with them. They're not Christian, and they never can be Christian because they're not white. They're not. They're not Israelites. They're not part of the of the original race that Christianity was intended for. It's just putting it before swine and dogs, giving it to them. It's such a blasphemy to to be preaching Christianity and giving our our scriptures that only we can understand and giving them to these other races and telling us that we should be accepting them as our equals and into our countries. It's just it's destroying us. You, you, you cannot extend these precepts to these other races. Those other races are there as a scourge against us because we've ignored what we were taught. We've totally ignored it, and, and they're there to punish us and push us back towards the way, the, the, the right way that, we, that we're supposed to be living. And, and we had these brief glimpses of what life could be like under a proper Christian government. We had that brief glimpse of it with National Socialist Germany. There was a glimpse of it under um, King Alfred the Great. There was a glimpse of it under King Arthur. We've got this in our history. It's worth looking into it just to see how the people lived. And just from the way that, that they wrote, you can see how honourable they were you know, and chivalrous and, and just good people. The sort of people that, that, we, that we wished we had around us today. That's what their societies were like back then. When they, they could, a good Christian society that is what we're missing today. Well, well the, um, the best demonstration of how Christians who disagree with each other, I think, I could be wrong, in, in, in uh, recent history... Christians who disagreed with each other severely over ecclesiastical issues, over allegiances, whether they be to Rome, to the Anglican Church, to, to the German Lutheran Church. The best, the, the, the single best demonstration of how Christians could severely disagree with each other, yet still have respect and, and a certain degree of love and tolerance for each other is in the founding of the United States. When you had Roman Catholics, and, and you had, um, in Virginia, the Anglican Church dominated and, and basically was state-sponsored by the colony of Virginia. And, and um, the papers of James Monroe demonstrate, I'm sorry, James Madison demonstrate that fully that the state colony of Virginia was sponsoring the Anglican Church at the expense of all others. And, and, and the Puritans in Massachusetts and, and Pennsylvania, and, and there were all sorts of um, religious rivalries. And um, there were also ethnic rivalries between Germans and Englishmen, and, and, and for example, and the Catholic French, and, and Germans and Englishmen, but yet, and, and the French were a, a large presence in New England and, and in New York, even though that's little understood today. But these people still all got together and, and found Christian agreement and, and were able to form a union. It only lasted 80 years until the Civil War, but they were able to form a union and get along 
based on Christian principles until that was corrupted and perverted by the Jews. But, but um, it, it's Christianity and the moral foundation it, it provides is necessary for the civilization of white people and their survival as a, um, as a biological group on this planet. And it's the only paradigm which we have ever thrived under as a people in the last 2,000 years. And, and people can point to, um, to the Romans and say, well, what about Rome? Rome was great for 1,200 years. Well, Rome, for its um, first 800 years of, of its existence, was pretty much homogenous and lived, and they got their laws from the Greeks, and that's explained in the Roman historian Livy. And when they became an empire from the time of Caesar, they didn't last but 400 years. They, and, and it was only momentum that kept them going for that long, and they had nothing but civil wars amongst themselves during that 400 years, with the exception uh, of the first century AD. They had, before and after the first century AD, they, they had, and, and I'm using that, that, that time frame roughly, it was really from the time of Augustus uh, until perhaps after the time of, um, of Hadrian, I believe, or maybe a little later. They had nothing but civil wars outside of that time and sought to slaughter each other and, and, and dethrone each other. And even during that time, we had Nero and Caligula and, and murder and intrigue in the capital. So Rome is, is hardly a, um, a, an example of something non-Christian that was durable. It, it's um, incredible to me that these pagans, these neo-pagans and, and these other people think that we can have a sound society without the morals which Christianity tells us that we should have. And, and no pagan system offers any viable alternative and never did. If it offered a viable alternative then our forefathers would not have so easily abandoned paganism thousands of years ago, or, or 10 or 15 or 20 centuries ago, depending upon which tribe in Europe we, we derive from. So the pagans are wrong, and, and we're going to continue to demonstrate that, that, that um, the, the demise of Europe today is attributable to the, the departure from Christianity. And we'll continue to discuss this in future weeks. Then I want to thank you for joining me today. Praise Yahweh. We'll be here in two weeks. If you have any remarks, you, you can surely... Oh, so, just, I've really enjoyed myself today. Yeah, I really enjoyed myself today, Bill. Uh, just enjoyed listening to you, and I hope people have enjoyed listening to the pair of us and got something from it. Well, thank you, sir. Thank you for being here. And good night.
I'll be here Friday, 1 Corinthians, part 6.